This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Big cons, big love, and escaping the big house. Just the tip of the iceberg in the larger-than-life story of master schemer Stephen Russell. If you enjoy these episodes about a con man's quest for love, check out the Con Artist podcast. There you'll find more stories of history's trickiest fibbers, hustlers, and swindlers. Listen to Con Artists free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thirty-five-year-old Stephen Russell strode confidently through the Harrison County Jail. His stretchy red pants and strangely patterned brown T-shirt made him seem out of place in the stark facility. He didn't look like an inmate. He moved with determination and brandished a walkie-talkie. Russell blithely nodded at two sheriff's deputies as he passed them in the hallway. Without breaking stride, he continued on to the security checkpoint between the visitors' area and inmate holding. Thick steel doors blocked his exit, but he quickly tapped on the control booth window with his walkie-talkie. Just like that, the doors opened before him and he continued on. Strolling through the visitor center, he held the walkie-talkie to his mouth, obscuring his face. After a short walk, he stepped out of the jail and into the cool darkness of the early morning. He smiled to himself. He was free. Russell had just walked right out of jail and away from his 10-year sentence. And it wouldn't be his last escape. Russell's incredible jailbreaks made him one of America's most legendary con men. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. 
You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first episode on Stephen Russell, a financial scammer and serial jailbreaker who defrauded several corporations out of more than a million dollars. This week, we'll learn about Russell's early life and criminal career as he worked his way up from petty theft to insurance fraud. Next week, we'll hear about Russell's love affair with Philip Morris and how it drove him to pull off even more brazen schemes and daring escapes until his final arrest in 1998. In just eight years, Russell committed an impressive number of crimes, including, but not limited to, petty theft, identity theft, passport fraud, insurance fraud, embezzlement, impersonating a police officer, and impersonating a federal judge. But these feats pale in comparison to his crowning achievement, escaping from jail on four separate occasions. Russell pulled off these getaways with incredible ingenuity and audacity, usually finding a way to simply walk out the front door. With his skills of deception, he may have been able to avoid the police for the rest of his life. Yet he had one weakness. He was a hopeless romantic. After each escape, he would attempt to reunite with his lover so the authorities always knew where to find him. In contrast to the dramatic criminal exploits that he would later engage in, Stephen Russell's early years were quite unremarkable. Russell was raised with his older brother in Virginia Beach, a coastal city of Chesapeake Bay by conservative, religious parents. Young Russell was close with his father and spent much of his time at the family produce company. His job was to prepare orders for delivery, but he didn't care much for manual labor. Instead, from an early age, Russell thought he was better suited to a management position. In preparation, he mastered the basics of accounting and money management, skills which would prove to be helpful later on. His childhood was idyllic and educational, until he turned nine years old and his parents revealed that he was adopted. While they assured him that they loved him just as much as their biological son, Scott, young Russell began to feel like an outsider. His resentment caused him to act out in school. This troubled behavior continued for years, and it culminated in an incident where 12-year-old Russell allegedly set a bully's jacket on fire. As a result, Russell was sent to a psychiatric ward for a month of observation and then to a juvenile correctional center for anger management therapy. Russell's experience in the correctional center proved to be a formative time in his life. First, Russell realized he was gay when he had his first homosexual encounter with a teenager who worked at the facility. This realization, combined with the year that Russell spent away from home, added to his overwhelming sense of abandonment. 
he wrestled with feelings of rejection and obsessed over tracking down his biological family. Russell's anxiety about belonging is a hallmark of what psychologists call insecure attachment, a working model of relationships that is established in childhood and persists through adulthood. People with an insecure attachment style feel loss or rejection in relationships and yearn for extreme emotional closeness with their partners. A 2007 study by Judith Feeney, Nola Passmore, and Candida Peterson found that insecure attachment may be more widespread in adopted children, like Russell. This is due to feelings of alienation and abandonment associated with the adoption process. Data also supports a significant association between insecure attachment and depression. Psychologists Benjamin Hankin, John Castle, and John Abella theorize that this connection works through a cognitive pathway where insecure attachment leads to dysfunctional attitudes or rigid and extreme beliefs about oneself and the world. These negative attitudes, in turn, lead to lower self-esteem, and poor self-esteem elevates the risk of depressive symptoms. Russell hid his sexuality, dating girls his age, to avoid being rejected by his conservative, religious family. He felt more and more like he didn't belong. His dreams of reuniting with his biological family intensified, and so did his secrecy. Throughout his teen years, he had dalliances with boys and older men in secluded spots. After graduating from high school in 1976, Russell joined the family produce business. His father brought him in on meetings with other local companies where they set favorable prices to ensure that they won lucrative school district contracts. This was part of an illegal process called bid rigging, and Russell took to his first racket like a fish to water. But even while working for D.S. Russell and Sons, he longed to track down his biological family. He planned to become a police officer so he could gain the necessary skills. And at 19 years old, Russell began to spend time around the police department. There he met Debbie Davis, the police chief's secretary. The two began dating and were married in 1976. Russell and Debbie lived a charmed life, all while Russell hid his attraction to men. In 1979, when Russell was 22, the couple moved into Russell's childhood home and welcomed a daughter, Stephanie, to their family. Later that year, Russell began volunteering with the local sheriff's office. With this position, he finally got the chance to look into his biological family. He quickly located his birth mother, Brenda Basham, and discovered that she lived just 30 miles away. Before visiting his mother, Russell learned everything he could about her and her family. He discovered that his biological father was dead and that his mother had remarried. She had two other sons, neither of whom were put up for adoption. As Russell drove to meet his mother, his mind spun with all the questions he would finally be able to ask her, questions he'd had since he was nine years old. When he arrived, he summoned all of his courage to step out of his car and knock on the door. When Brenda answered, Russell explained. She was his mother. 
he waited for her response, breath still in his lungs. This was the moment he had dreamed about for years. This was the reunion that would help him find his place in the world. But his hopes for a joyful reunion were immediately dashed. Brenda denied everything Russell said and shooed him away. This fresh rejection was a crushing blow for Russell, and he gave up on the idea of ever reconnecting with his family. Still reeling from disappointment, Russell turned his mind to other serious matters that demanded his attention. In 1980, Department of Justice prosecutors subpoenaed the Russell family to question them about their bid-rigging enterprise. With their backs against the wall, the Russells decided to cooperate with the feds. Stephen Russell even participated in a sting operation to catch the other two companies red-handed. When the dust settled, he figured it was a good time to get out of the produce industry and out of town to Florida. But for the next few years, Russell's life was extremely unstable as he struggled to hold down a job. Around this time, Russell resumed his habit of cruising for sexual encounters with men. Between 1983 and 1984, he had a few run-ins with the law for solicitation, but the charges were dismissed. Russell eventually found a new job with national food distributor Cisco and moved to Houston, Texas. Russell left early to get things in place for his family, while his wife and daughter waited in Virginia Beach. When 28-year-old Russell arrived in Houston, he took advantage of the distance and began openly dating men. He managed to maintain his dating life in secret even after his wife and daughter joined him, but a chance misfortune brought his adulterous escapades crumbling down. In April 1986, Russell had a near-fatal car accident that left him hospitalized for several months. While he recovered, his wife took over the family finances and noticed suspicious charges for hotel rooms. She confronted Russell, and he came clean about his secret trysts and his sexuality. Debbie accepted the truth, and the two amicably went their separate ways. Once Russell was back on his feet in December, she returned to Virginia Beach with their daughter. Now on his own, 29-year-old Russell applied for a job with Serco, a large food distribution company based in Los Angeles. Russell wanted to make sure he got the gig, so he took the extraordinary step of putting in a good word for himself. Russell claims to have called S.E. Rykoff and pretended to be a CFO from another company. Under this guise, Russell gave himself a glowing recommendation. The ruse worked, and Russell got the job. He moved to Los Angeles in April 1989. Things went smoothly until November, when his employer ran a background check and found out two startling facts. First, the CFO whom Russell had impersonated didn't exist. And second, Russell had been arrested previously for solicitation. He was immediately dismissed. But Russell did not let this setback slow him down. 
By January 1990, Russell had already acquired a new job as chief operating officer of a food distribution business in New Orleans. He believed he was finally safe. But in time, rumors of his previous arrest for solicitation began spreading around the workplace. Sensing which way the winds were blowing, Russell decided he needed to act fast to build himself a financial safety net. To this end, Russell faked a slip-and-fall accident in his apartment complex, and he threatened to sue the management company in charge of the building. The complex settled for $45,000, almost $90,000 today. With these funds in hand, Russell quit his position a month later. Thanks to this settlement, Russell could live comfortably for a short time, but he was anxious. The money would run out eventually. That summer, 33-year-old Russell returned home to plan his next move. Just a few weeks later, he'd fully commit to a life of crime. Next, we'll see a surprising reunion. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By June of 1990, Stephen Russell was 33 years old with no professional prospects. He had returned to his hometown of Virginia Beach to plan out his next steps when a friend introduced him to a woman named Debbie Basham. Stephen and Debbie got along great together, and, in an incredible coincidence, she turned out to be married to his biological brother. Russell had long desired to reunite with his biological family, and he was thrilled by this chance run-in but he was also scared he'd have his heart broken again if he tried to reconnect with his family. In the end, he decided the risk was worth it, and this time the reunion went much differently. Russell's sister-in-law invited him to dinner, where Russell's two biological brothers warmly welcomed him into the family. His biological mother even apologized for having turned him away before. Russell finally had the kind of relationship with his biological family that he desperately wanted since childhood. But while his family life was looking up, his professional life was in shambles. He felt that being involved in a federal sting operation prevented him from working in the produce industry, and his prior assets precluded him from working in law enforcement. With his score from the bogus slip-and-fall claim drying up, Russell thought his best option was to commit wholeheartedly to a life of crime. And he didn't waste any time getting started. At the end of the year, Russell set his sights on his first grift, identity theft. By calling in a favor from old friends at the police station, Russell accessed law enforcement databases to look up the date of birth and social security number for Stephen Lind Russell. With this information, he opened a credit account in the other Russell's name and bought two Rolex watches. 
Then, he sold the watches to a jeweler for a cool $12,000 in profit. A few weeks later, Stephen Lind Russell got some suspicious bills in the mail and contacted the Virginia State Police. It wasn't hard to connect the dots of what happened. After a brief investigation, Russell surrendered and was sentenced to five years probation. His criminal debut was off to a rocky start, and things would only get worse for the aspiring conman. Russell figured a fake passport would come in handy in his new life as a career criminal. While visiting a friend in Houston, he looked up the identity of yet another Stephen Russell and applied for a passport in his name. But federal authorities caught on to him and indicted him for passport fraud. Worse yet, federal agents found out about the slip-and-fall claim and the ensuing $45,000 insurance settlement. Correctly suspecting that Russell faked the accident, they notified the Harris County DA office, which indicted Russell for felony insurance fraud. While his legal troubles piled up, Russell fled Texas for Florida. He got a job sourcing tomatoes for a wholesale grocery store, a position which was surprisingly ripe for fraud. In a practice called field ground buying, Russell bought low-quality tomatoes on the cheap and sold them for higher prices. With this scheme, Russell was soon clearing $4,000 to $6,000 a week in profit. Business was booming, and Russell's love life was also looking up. In June of 1991, Russell fell head over heels in love with a man for the first time. The couple had a rather unorthodox meet-cute. Russell was checking into the Palm Beach Four Seasons with a one-night stand when he met James Kempel, a 25-year-old bellhop. The next morning at checkout, the two began flirting and sparks flew. There was a nine-year age difference between 25-year-old Kempel and 34-year-old Russell, and Russell was also facing several criminal charges, though he kept that to himself. Kempel had struggles of his own. He let Russell know that he was HIV positive, which, in the early 90s, practically amounted to a death sentence. The two likely shouldn't have begun a long-term relationship, but none of these roadblocks kept them apart. Russell and Kempel quickly fell for each other, and within a few months, they moved into a Palm Beach apartment together. A month later, in November 1991, Russell was ordered to serve six months in a federal correctional center for his earlier passport fraud charges. He was allowed a few months to get his affairs in order, but that put a significant damper on his honeymoon period with Kempel. Russell kept his legal issues a complete secret from his partner. Alone with his worries, he despaired over his impending imprisonment and fell into a deep depression. He received a prescription for Xanax and heavily self-medicated with alcohol. This kind of mental tailspin is understandable, given such difficult circumstances. In fact, psychologists Netta Horesh, Anat Klomek, and Alan Apter have found evidence that stressful events, such as those involving loss and separation, may trigger the first onset of clinical depression. As he faced his prison sentence, 
Russell had a perfect storm of factors predisposing him to depression. He was facing a loss of freedom and separation from his boyfriend. When the day finally came for him to report to prison, he was emotionally debilitated. The night before his sentence was set to begin, Russell went on a bender, drinking excessively and overdosing on Xanax. He woke up in a Fort Lauderdale hospital. His doctor said he had a duty to report Russell to the authorities, but Russell had other plans. He took off from the hospital in a cab and headed for his Palm Beach home. He was in a rush, but he still stopped to refill his Xanax prescription, a bottle containing 100 pills. He had the cabbie take him home, where he downed the entire bottle. It doesn't seem like Russell truly intended to end his life, but rather, he was desperate to avoid going to jail. Kempel arrived shortly afterward and called an ambulance for Russell, who was barely conscious. It took Russell several days to recover from his second suicide attempt. When he was about to be discharged, a doctor tipped him off that the FBI was on the way to arrest him and escort him to prison. Thinking fast, Russell drove to a Ritz-Carlton and checked in to ponder his next move. Kemple met him there later and pleaded with him to just serve his time, but Russell refused. He stayed at the hotel for a week, hiding out from the authorities. Russell drank heavily and his suicidal urges returned. By this point, he was out of Xanax, so he overdosed on his blood pressure medication instead. This time, when he woke up in the hospital, a police officer was waiting in his room to serve him with a federal warrant for his arrest. In April 1992, 35-year-old Russell was personally escorted to Houston by a Harris County deputy. At the time, federal correctional facilities in Houston were full, so Russell was taken to the county jail to serve out his sentence. In addition to the six months he owed on the passport fraud charge, he was also facing up to 10 years for a felony insurance fraud charge in connection with his phony slip and fall. There, in a miserable, overcrowded cell, Russell found himself at a crossroads. He could heed Kempel's plea and just do his time. With model behavior, in a few years he could emerge as a free man and move on with his life. Or he could attempt to escape and return to his dying boyfriend's side. With Kempel's HIV-positive status, there was no telling how long they had left together. Russell didn't want to waste a single minute of their time behind bars. As such, Russell found the latter option far more appealing, even with the slight wrinkle that escaping would make him a fugitive from the law. With his mind made up, Russell got to work planning his very first jailbreak. He had been assigned to a dorm-style pod where there were far too many prying eyes, so first he needed to find a way to obtain a less crowded cell. After Russell's third suicide attempt, he'd had a heart catheter inserted through his thigh, which left a large bruise. Russell decided to use this to his advantage. He intentionally injured himself further, punching and squeezing his leg to worsen the bruising. Then he told medical staff that he'd been beaten up. That did the trick. 
Russell was immediately moved to an individual cell where he could plan his jailbreak in relative peace and quiet. Soon after arranging this upgrade, a golden opportunity fell into his bruised lap. A fellow inmate offered to get Russell a position working in the jail in exchange for a $100 bribe. Inmates with jobs had more freedom to move around the facility, something Russell very much wanted. He had Kempel send the money, and he was in. Russell could now move about the prison, which allowed him to consider possible escape routes. After weighing his options, Russell decided that his best bet was to steal civilian clothes and simply walk out the front door. Fortunately for him, the Harrison County Jail kept the street clothes that criminals were arrested in on site. Unfortunately, the men's clothes were inaccessible, but the women's clothes could easily be acquired. Russell searched through a pile of women's clothes until he found something that might fit him, a pair of stretchy red pants and a large white t-shirt. He smuggled these to a trusted fellow inmate for safekeeping. He also gave his friend some tea bags and asked him to tie-dye the t-shirt for him. The next day, he had a brownish t-shirt and red stretch pants. It wasn't perhaps the most stylish of disguises, but it would have to do. Russell's plan was to pass himself off as an undercover policeman, but he would need another prop if he was to have any hope of getting away with it. One day, he spotted just the thing, a walkie-talkie charging in the infirmary. To earn the nurse's trust, he began taking them leftover food. Russell also meticulously studied the jail's security, searching for weak spots that he could slip through. Only a month after his arrival, Russell was ready to make his exit. On May 12, 1992, 35-year-old Russell brought a hamburger to the nurse on duty in the infirmary. While she was distracted, he slid the walkie-talkie into his burger bag and slipped away. He stashed the walkie elsewhere, ready for his escape. Early the next morning, Friday the 13th, Russell called a former co-worker from his days at Cisco who lived near the jail. Russell hung up as soon as Ginaldo answered. He just wanted to make sure he was home. Next, Russell collected his hot pants, stained t-shirt and walkie-talkie from his friend. During the guard's regular cigarette break, he changed into his new outfit and made his way to the visitor's area. He strolled right past two guards who didn't give him a second glance. When he reached the security checkpoint, he raised the walkie-talkie casually and confidently to tap on the control booth window. The guard opened the doors without question. Russell was thrilled, but he forced himself not to walk too fast as he crossed over to the visitor side. He had cleared the first hurdle, but there was one more obstacle in his path. Russell made his way through the lobby to the front doors of the jail. He pretended to speak into the walkie-talkie both for an air of authenticity and to hide his face. He waited for someone to shout at him, shoot at him, or tackle him to the ground, but no one did. He stepped out of the doors and into the cool morning air. He was free. Coming up next, 
Russell goes on the run, leading the authorities on an international game of cat and mouse. Now, back to the story. On Friday, May 13, 1992, 35-year-old Stephen Russell escaped from jail for the first time. But he didn't stop to celebrate. He had to get as much distance between him and the jail as possible, and fast. As he walked away from the visitor's entrance of the Harris County Jail, Russell waved his walkie-talkie at a passing driver and got them to stop. He claimed to be a police officer having car trouble and asked the driver to take him to a nearby hotel. The driver bought his story and obliged. Russell kept the walkie-talkie on display, hoping to distract from his unorthodox red pants and brown t-shirt. Once they reached the hotel, Russell made a call to his former co-worker, A.D. Ganaldo. He said that he'd been robbed and asked his friend to bring him a change of clothes and some cash so he could get home. His friend agreed and arrived within the hour. Russell quickly changed into the ill-fitting clothes that Ganaldo brought and had his friend drop him off at another hotel in Houston. Just as he closed the door to his room, he heard an all-points bulletin for his re-arrest come through on his stolen walkie-talkie. Lesser conmen might have panicked, but Russell kept a cool head. He was fluent in police jargon from his time in law enforcement, so he knew exactly what to say. Using the two-way radio, he impersonated a police officer and said that he'd spotted himself on the opposite side of the county. In another effort to throw police off his scent, he booked a flight to his hometown of Norfolk using his own name. This was just a decoy. Russell actually headed to Miami, where he reunited with James Kempel. Russell and Kempel laid low in a hotel and made arrangements to fly to Mexico. Their plan was for Russell to travel first with Kempel joining him a week later. Russell made it to the airport, but just as he was about to board his flight, his heart got the better of him. He couldn't bring himself to leave without Kempel. He left the terminal and walked to the parking lot. Before he reached his car, two US Marshals arrested him and took him to the Dade County Jail. Kempel's mother had tipped off the authorities about their plan. Understandably, she didn't think it was a great idea for her ailing son to run off to Mexico with a convict. It seemed Russell's prison break had come to a rather disappointing end. But he was just getting warmed up. The next day, Russell represented himself in court. He argued that he should be released on bond since his home was nearby in Palm Beach, Florida, he conveniently left out the fact that he'd jumped bail before and authorities had just apprehended him in an airport about to skip town. Amazingly, the judge agreed and set a very low bail. Russell only had to put up $2,000 to secure his release. Once he posted the bond, Russell was off and running again. Resuming his attempt to leave the country, he and his boyfriend caught a flight to Mexico City. On the way, Russell penned a letter to the judge who had sentenced him for passport fraud, apologizing for not turning himself in. But Russell didn't really regret his decision to flee. The note was just another ruse to cover his tracks. He gave the letter to a flight attendant and had her mail it from her next stopover. 
in the Dominican Republic. Meanwhile, Russell and his boyfriend arrived in Mexico City, where Russell got a job as a consultant for a small oil company. One could accuse Russell of many things, but being lazy is not one of them. He kept himself busy, even while on the lam. Unfortunately, Russell couldn't sell the oil company on his big ideas, and he soon grew bored with Mexico City. He was also concerned about the healthcare options available for his boyfriend, who was HIV positive. Russell and Kempel returned to the United States, laying low in New York and Philadelphia for about a month each. Kempel's health began to fail, and he longed to return home to Florida. So, in July 1992, Russell lined up a job for himself managing a fast food restaurant in Miami. Things went all right until that October, when Russell was assigned to a new location. He butted heads with his new boss, and in retaliation, began skimming a couple hundred bucks from the cash register every night. To conduct his nightly robbery, he stole a programming key for the computerized system and used it to clear the running totals at the end of the day. That way, no record remained to show how much money should have been in the till. Russell got away with this scot-free, until he left the job. The store managers noticed that there was suddenly a lot more money in the register when he wasn't around. In response, the company called the police. A detective arrived at Russell's door to question him, but Russell claimed complete innocence. In fact, he was so aggrieved by the accusation that he threatened to sue the cop and the restaurant. Russell's confidence was quite persuasive, and the charges were dropped. However, he thought it was best to move on to the next town all the same. Russell applied to work for NutraSuite, a Chicago-based food company, as the director of North American sales. He made two small but significant changes to his resume before sending it in. First, he put the name of his boyfriend, James Kempel, at the top. And second, he invented some experience running his own produce company in San Francisco. He was up against hundreds of candidates, many of whom were more qualified on paper. But while those other applicants might have been better at reading a balance sheet, Russell was better at reading people. His modified resume got him an interview at the company's headquarters, where he was able to use his powers of persuasion to full effect. As quoted in I Love You, Philip Morris, a true story of life, love, and prison breaks, Russell said, Listening to a person is the key to being able to outwit them. Although simply listening to someone won't convince them to do anything, this kind of attention can facilitate other persuasive strategies. For example, social psychologist Robert Cialdini wrote that a perceived similarity creates a presumption of goodwill and trustworthiness. In other words, people like those who are like them, and people are more inclined to hire someone that they like. Listening closely to his interviewer might have given Russell more opportunities to find common ground, thus generating goodwill and increasing his odds of getting the job. Whichever strategy Russell chose, it worked. He landed the sales position with NutraSuite and the $85,000 salary that came with it. 
Russell and Kempel moved to Chicago in January 1993, and Russell dove into a new series of scams. First, he worked at Nutrisuite under James Kempel's name. Not only did using this alias let him continue to keep a low profile, it also provided his HIV-positive boyfriend with excellent health insurance. It was a pretty sweet setup, but Russell didn't stop there. He also took out several life insurance policies in Kempel's name. And while he was at it, he embezzled $45,000 from the company within 10 months through phony expenses. It turns out Russell should have quit while he was ahead. The expense account grift cost him his plum job when, in November 1993, NutraSuite discovered his creative accounting during a routine audit. The company swiftly terminated him, but didn't press charges in order to avoid bad publicity. While Russell had been working for NutraSuite, Kempel's health further deteriorated, and he needed round-the-clock care. Kempel wanted to return to Florida to be near his mother in his final days. So 36-year-old Russell sent out another batch of resumes, again using Kempel's name. In January 1994, Russell landed a job as VP of Finance for a large medical management company and one of their subsidiary companies. Again, Russell engaged in some creative accounting and decided that each company should pay him a separate $75,000 salary for a total of $150,000 per year. Since he was in charge of the company's finances, no one was the wiser. Russell fleeced the company in this way for four months until he felt DCI was about to catch on to his racket. He abruptly left his position in April 1994 before his double-dealing was discovered. But before he resigned, Russell took out several more life insurance policies in his ailing boyfriend's name, to the tune of half a million dollars. Russell's intuition was right on the money. Shortly after his hasty departure, DCI discovered the extra paychecks that Russell was writing himself and alerted the police. The authorities began looking into James Kempel since that was the name Russell had been working under. Investigators suspected more fraud was afoot when they found out Kempel had AIDS and noticed several life insurance companies in Russell's Rolodex. By that point, Russell and Kempel had already skipped town. The couple flew to Philadelphia under false names and began withdrawing funds from their many bank accounts. Kempel's health had deteriorated further, but he wanted to conduct the transactions on his own to prove that he could still handle his own affairs. Here, Russell made another serious miscalculation. He agreed to stay back at the hotel while his boyfriend went to the bank alone. But Kempel did not have Russell's knack for keeping cool under pressure. The bank manager found Kempel's substantial withdrawal peculiar and questioned his motivations. Kempel fell to pieces under the manager's scrutiny. Realizing Kempel had been gone for over an hour, Russell called the bank to find out what was happening. He was only able to speak to Kempel briefly, but they exchanged a code word that let Russell know 
The jig was up. Russell pondered his next move over room service. But while Russell broke his fast, the police broke Kempel down and got him to reveal where his boyfriend was staying. Ten police officers showed up at Russell's door before he could finish his steak and eggs. Russell and Kempel were both charged with federal bank fraud for the DCI life insurance scam. Kempel was released on bond to his mother in Florida, but the authorities were not so lenient with Russell. He was sent to a federal correctional facility in Fairton, New Jersey, a thousand miles away from the Sunshine State. Russell talked to Kempel on the phone every day, helpless to do anything while his boyfriend's disease progressed. A month later, on July 17, 1994, James Kempel died of AIDS at the age of 28. Russell was completely devastated by the loss, but he was also inspired when he learned that Kempel's charges had been dropped because he was terminally ill. Hoping for similar clemency, Russell got back to work plotting his next escape. Around the same time, Russell had made the acquaintance of a fellow inmate who happened to be a doctor. Russell grilled the physician about the symptoms of HIV and AIDS. Then, armed with this information, Russell starved himself until he lost 50 pounds and became incontinent. Russell soon appeared deathly ill, but he knew that looks alone wouldn't get him out. He used a prison typewriter to edit his lab reports to show that he was indeed in the final stages of AIDS. Russell then presented this evidence to the prosecutors, and believing him to be at death's door, the US attorneys dropped the federal charges against him. Russell had pulled off another incredible con, but even with the federal charges dismissed, he still owed time to the state of Texas. In December 1994, Russell was extradited back to Harris County to face state felony charges for his escape and bogus slip and fall. Harris County Jail was fast becoming something of a good luck charm for Russell. Not only had he already escaped its bars once before, but it was the place where he would meet the next love of his life, Philip Morris a man who would inspire Russell to pull off more ambitious scams and increasingly sensational jailbreaks. These criminal antics would soon make Stephen Russell one of the most well-known conmen in the world. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Stephen Russell's story. We'll hear how he fell madly in love with Philip Morris and orchestrated increasingly elaborate escapes from jail to reunite with him. We'll also hear how his obsession with Morris finally landed him behind bars for good. For more information on Stephen Russell, amongst the many sources we used, we found Steve McVicker's book, I Love You, Philip Morris, a true story of life, love, and prison breaks, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Parcast Originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Con Artist was written by Noni Okwalagu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Mm-hmm.